as he would tell some insurance clerk in 1919, he fell unconscious in the wheat as his unit, to which he'd belonged for just a month, stepped over him and continued its advance down the sloping, deadly vale into the village of Ploissy and slightly beyond. He would awake hours later to the sound of... What? Intermittent machine gun fire, one report says. To the sounds of a blubbering confession, my father would tell me many years later, as another from his company, who lay paralyzed too there in the wheat, poured out to the old man his confessions to having performed every kind of criminal perversion, rape and murder and God knows what. In the morning, as the sounds of battle rose steadily with the sun, John Nelson had been roughly kicked by an Algerian stretcher-bearer searching for life among the brown clumps of young Americans in the wheat, and he had groaned, and achieved his random salvation on, and his escape from, that terrible battlefield, the one just south of Soissons, where the tide of war was turning in the Allies' favor, even as he was being hustled to the back lines. He was carried to a field station in a cave at Missiabois, and then trucked to Field Hospital No. 12 in the village of Pierrefonds-les-Bains, where blood-spattered, exhausted surgeons plied their scalpels and bone saws in an old hotel, and before the battle was done, on tables spilled into the streets. Once he had been patched together, there ensued an odyssey through hospitals in France, as well as the United States. And on April 1st, 1919, the Army deemed him okay and handed him $60 and an honorable discharge and a swift kick out of the gates of Camp Grant. He returned to his $32-a-week job as a painter in Chicago, to which he'd first traveled in 1911 after leaving Sweden and hopping the Lusitania from England to the gates of Ellis Island and he would live long enough to send his own son into another, second, world war, and to wear lime-green pants with white shoes, and to watch men walk on the moon, and to have six grandchildren, of which I was the last. But in all the days I knew him, he never talked about them, never mentioned his fellow Swede, Swanson, whose body wasn't found until 1933, just a collection of bare bones by then, wrapped in burlap and scattered with three unknowns in a shallow grave in Berzy-le-Sec. He never mentioned the Norwegian, Eidsvik, whose body went home by boat through the fjords in 1922. Nor did he talk of Ralph Pohl or Orville Ballard, or any of those with whom he had crossed the Paris-Soissons road that day and who had also lived. Balcaro and Bronston and Vedral, the tough Bohemian sergeant. He talked a little about that day over the years, but words weren't his currency, and so he had left us with the happy ending, and no beginning or middle, and kept the seamy part, the details of that day, to himself. On the day he turned one hundred years old, I surprised him, and found the ancient doughboy daydreaming in his tiny cell at the retirement home. He was stretched out on his bed, 
hands behind his head staring at the ceiling when I walked in. He had never weighed more than 150 pounds, and he was shrunken now with great age. His body, a tiny island in the sea of his bed, and lost as well in the blue wool sweater he always wore no matter the season. His senses were shot. His eyesight blurred with cataracts, but his mind was still sharp, and he knew someone was there. He startled and sat up, as if he'd been caught doing something wrong, and directed me with a wave of his hand to a chair on which sat a box full of cards and letters. Read them to me, he said. There were cards from the few old Swedes back in Chicago who hadn't yet faded away, some from old neighbors, some from God knows who, and it struck me for the first time that he'd lived a whole life.